You're listening to Radio 1190, 1190 AM KVCU Boulder, Denver, 98.9 FM Translator K255DA Boulder. Welcome to News Underground. My name is Lucy. I'll be your host tonight. I have Mark Cerez. He is the director of the National Snow and Ice Data Center. Uh, he is a fellow at Sears here in Boulder, and he is also a geography professor. Thank you for joining me on the show. Oh, thanks for having me. So we're really here to talk mostly about your new book, uh, Brave New Arctic. First off, the title. Uh, were you thinking Brave New World by Aldous Huxley? Well, actually, I didn't choose the title. I had a different title in mind. I forget what it is now, but uh, the publisher kind of came up with that. And I thought it was a bit Aldous Huxley-ish, but uh, I figure they know better than I do. So what's, what's the book about? Um, it spans a few decades of story. Yeah, well, it's about the Arctic and the changing Arctic. It's about the extremely rapid changes we've seen in the Arctic's climate. But it's told from a kind of a unique perspective of the scientists who saw it all happen, who came together to understand these big changes we've been seeing. So it's from a very different perspective. Uh, it's not just, you know, talk about how the Arctic has changed, but how we, how we became to understand what was happening, how we know what we know. Uh, so it's kind of, a, a, in many ways, a personal journey, because I'm a climate scientist. I've been doing this for uh, over 30 years. But it's also a story about how science is done. And I think a lot of people don't really understand this, how science is actually done. So I tried to get at this uh, and really trying to paint the scientists as very human people, because that's what we all are. Yeah, and I think that's an interesting way to go about it. So what's from your perspective especially what's been the process like in the past couple decades of kind of understanding what's going on uh with climate change but especially in the arctic well if you're going to be a climate scientist it's basically being a detective uh, i mean in many fields of science that's what it is it's being detective running down clues playing hunches uh and in our case we're in part looking at data that comes in from satellites. Uh, from satellite, we can tell what the Arctic sea ice cover is doing. That's the floating ice cover of the Arctic. We can tell a lot about what's happening, say, to the Greenland ice sheet. Uh, but at the same time, you've actually got to go out there to the Arctic and see what's going on. You've got to hit it with your own hammer, uh, whether you're measuring the depth of the snow or the warmth of the permafrost, something like that. You've got to approach it from all sides. And the specialists in all kinds of different areas of climate. Uh, so it's a very, very vast field. Uh, but it's uh, really a matter of knowing how all the pieces work together. And that's kind of my job as a geographer, is fitting the, these disparate pieces together to kind of come up with a whole and figure out what the heck's going on. Yeah, and I'm sure that's not easy. Uh, was there ever a time in the field, um, recent or in, in the course of this book, um, that really kind of had an aha moment for you, whether it was good or bad, of what was going on? Well, I think that aha moment was actually only occurred a couple of years ago, and it wasn't specifically into the field. It was looking at what happened to these two little ice caps that I cut my teeth on. It was way back in 1982 that I started out on this, and I was uh, about to graduate from UMass, not Amherst College, ZooMass Amherst, with a bachelor's degree in geography. Didn't know quite what I wanted to do. And this prof said, well, I need a field assistant for the summer. At the same time, you might uh, apply to grad school. So I did that. 
but uh, his work was up in the Arctic, and so I went along, and uh, I started studying these two little ice caps up on northern Ellesmere Island, way the heck up there, uh, 80 degrees north, up in what was called the Northwest Territories back then. And for two summers, springs and summers, I studied every square inch of these little ice caps. I knew their every mood. I felt kind of a sense of ownership of them almost. And uh, ice caps are supposed to be these permanent things. Now, that was way back. And uh, so then it was just a couple years ago um, that we were looking at some satellite data back here in Boulder, high-resolution stuff. And we, we said, well, maybe let's, let's take a look at these little ice caps, how, they were, how they're doing. And we looked, and we looked, and we looked, and we finally found them. We finally got the location, and they were almost gone. Uh, we found out that there was like 5% of them was left, something like that. The rest had all melted away. And uh, now they're not even ice caps. They're just little patches of ice now, and they're going to be gone in a couple of years. And this is when it really hit home for me. Uh, climate change became very personal at that point, uh, that here I was studying my ice caps, and I go and look, and they're gone. Uh, it just tells you how fast something like this can happen. Uh, and I'd, uh, it a uh, little, little piece of me died when I saw that. It's definitely an emotional experience. It's like you get almost uh, connected to these ice caps and then to find out that they're they're pretty much gone. Um, and th that's just one example. But, of course, there's the massive Greenland ice sheet. What's been happening with that recently? Because that's been kind of in discussion. Yeah, well, the Greenland ice sheet, like pretty much all of the glaciers and ice caps and even at the Antarctic ice sheet, is melting down or is losing mass, and that's part of your sea level rise. So we know that sea level is rising. You can measure that. And uh, we know that a big contributor to that is the meltdown of glaciers uh, and ice sheets. And the Greenland ice sheet is one of those ones that's leading the way. Um, it took a while to figure out what was going on, uh, but now we have a pretty good handle on what the Greenland ice sheet is doing. Uh, there's a combination of approaches that you need to take mostly based on satellite, aircraft data, altimeters, for example, that can measure the exact elevation of the ice sheet, and we can see how that's changing. Well, the uh, Greenland ice sheet is melting down, as are uh, all the other, uh, pretty much all the other glaciers uh, around the Arctic. My little ice caps, of course, are contributing to this in their own very small way, inconsequential in that sense, uh, but they're still contributing. Uh, right now, sea level is rising. The number right now is at about 3.2 millimeters per year. doesn't sound like much, but it's year after year after year, and that number is going to get bigger and bigger and bigger, and the Greenland ice sheet for a long time is going to be one of those ice bodies that's leading the way. Yeah, and it's interesting. You don't think of Greenland as being particularly an issue, but it's it's one of clearly the biggest issues so you do a lot of work in the arctic how does the how do the changes in the arctic compare to the antarctic is one maybe leading the way or the other yeah absolutely the arctic is leading the way um now we've always thought of the uh, antarctic as kind of that uh, sleeping elephant that's beginning to stir and that's what it's doing now we've understood for a long time that as climate warming starts to take hold, it's going to be the Arctic where you see the changes first, the Arctic where they're going to be most pronounced, and the Antarctic is going to come in later into the picture. 
And that is exactly what we're seeing right now. Uh, this is what uh, our climate models were telling us even 40 years ago what they were saying. And that turns out to be uh, exactly true. The Arctic is leading the way. To stray a bit from the science of it, you mentioned 40 years ago you had these models. And yet now we're still kind of debating climate change in some circles. You've testified to Congress as well. And in your book, um, the one that's coming out, Brave New Arctic, it's been heralded as quite accessible to to readers. Um, in, in kind of crossing that border between science and communication, how do you do that? Well, I just got slowly drawn into this. Um, when I started out doing this sort of work in the Arctic, uh, we were just a bunch of crazy scientists with a love for snow and ice, and uh, um, we didn't get a lot of attention on this. But then as the climate started to warm up, the Arctic really started to change. And that's the thing that caught people's attention. You have the, the iconic images of like a polar bear on the melting ice floe and those sorts of things. Uh, people started to take notice of this. Uh, but when people started to take notice, they said, hey, these guys over here have actually been studying this stuff for a long time. And so we start to get a lot of questions from the media, for example, about what is, what is happening. And uh, slowly but surely, I've been drawn into this communication side of this. Uh, my career has, has definitely shifted away a bit from just doing that pure research on ice caps or glaciers or snow, whatever I was doing, and has started to shift more into this communication uh, role. And it's something you, uh, you have to just learn by doing. Uh, there's no sort of training or courses you can take to uh, learn how to speak to the public on these sorts of things. It's learning by doing and making a whole lot of mistakes along the way. Yeah, it, it definitely seems uh, tricky in some respects. Um, but you've also done, um, as a professor here, you do teach multiple geography courses. Um, and in that, there is a lot of discussion of kind of the geopolitics of climate change. How are these changes in the Arctic affecting the geopolitics of the region? Well, it's a, it's, the Arctic is kind of this, this poster child of, of how climate change and geopolitics can get intertwined. Uh, what you're seeing in the Arctic is that the Arctic loses its ice, it becomes more accessible. And I mean more accessible that, for example, there's a, a lot of mineral wealth at the bottom of the Arctic Ocean, oil, natural gas. Uh, as, that, as we lose the ice, that becomes much more accessible. And there's a certain irony to that, of course, uh, but that's what's happening. Um, Vladimir Putin and Russia is all over this, uh, really developing uh, Russian uh, Arctic assets in terms of oil, natural gas, all kinds of development going on. Um, there's a lot of interest by Department of Defense on what's happening in the Arctic. Uh, you talk to people from the Navy, uh, which we have, and uh, what they tell us is, well, we don't care why the Arctic is losing its ice. What we see is we have a blue ocean now that we didn't have to deal with before. Now we've got to patrol it. Um, you're seeing uh, a lot of interest in shipping companies, uh, the fabled Northwest Passage, right? The, uh, the shortcut between the Atlantic and Pacific. So uh, you take your boatload of, say, Toyota Priuses, and instead of going through the Suez Canal or something, uh, you just go right across the Arctic Ocean at great savings of time and energy. 
Um, tourism uh, is on the upswing. Uh, the past two summers, the Crystal Serenity, this huge cruise ship, a uh, 50,000-ton cruise ship, uh, went through the Northwest Passage, uh, taking its boatload of money tourists along with us. Now, people say, oh, well, people have been navigating the Northwest Passage for years. Well, it's true. This fellow named Roald Amundsen uh, started out to conquer the Northwest Passage. I think it was 1902, uh, but it took uh, him and his hardy crew two and a half years to do it. Well, the Crystal Serenity just cruised through in one week, uh, having caviar all the way, probably. Yeah, it's definitely, it's changing the economics of the region, if nothing else. Um, and I guess with all of this, there's a lot that's going on. What are some known unknowns? Well, there are a few things that we don't understand. Now, first of all, there's a lot we do understand. Uh, we know what's happening to the Arctic. We know where it is headed, but uh, only in a broad brush approach. So it's thinking of like painting a picture with a broad brush. Uh, we can see the outlines, we know what's going on, but the, the devil is in the details. Uh, and there's some things out there that a lot of people are concerned about that might come back and bite you. Uh, one of them is something called the permafrost carbon feedback. Now what this is all about is that there's a lot of carbon that's locked up in frozen soils up in the Arctic, frozen peatlands and things like that. And what's happening is that permafrost is warming and it's thawing. Well, when that permafrost thaws, that's perennially frozen ground is what permafrost is. Once that permafrost thaws, the little microbes in the soil become active and they start breathing. And what do they breathe out? Carbon dioxide or methane, depending on the situation. Well, then that adds to the load of carbon dioxide and methane to the atmosphere, which furthers the warming. Uh, so the questions out there is when does that permafrost carbon feedback kick in? If it does kick in, uh, how big will it be? So that's one of them. Now, the, uh, another one that people are talking about is the possibility of massive releases of methane into the atmosphere from underneath the Arctic Ocean. Uh, now, there's a lot of uh, methane under the Arctic Ocean in these continental shelves stored in what's called a clathrate form, an icy form. Under certain conditions, it can be held in this icy form. There's concern that as the Arctic Ocean warms up, those clathrates melt, and we get big bursts of methane into the atmosphere. That's, of course, a powerful greenhouse gas. Now, I think that's a low probability event, uh, but it's still, uh, it's not the sort of thing you just want to ignore. Now, the other thing, the third thing that a lot of people are talking about is that as we warm up the Arctic, what we can actually do is alter the pattern of the jet stream. That's that ribbon of strong winds high up in the atmosphere that very much controls the weather down here on the surface. Well, the idea is you warm up the Arctic, you mess up with that jet stream, and that actually has impacts on weather patterns right down here in middle latitudes, Boulder, for example. Uh, and what the idea is that you can get weather patterns that get stuck in a certain configuration. So, for example, at the same time that, say, Boulder is sitting in a deep freeze, it's so warm in Alaska that they've got to move the start of the Iditarod, those sorts of things. Very, very, very controversial. Uh, there are scientists on one side saying, absolutely, this is happening. We think it's already happening. We have the evidence. There's other scientists out here are saying, wait a minute, not so fast. There's other explanations for this. 
Uh, so, you know, we're really not sold on it. Very, very controversial. Uh, but this is how the science works. We move ahead. We have controversies. We move ahead, and hopefully we'll have an answer soon. So those are just a few of the things out there. Right, and... Uh, climate science has been pretty controversial as long as it's been around in its current form. How do you talk about it and do research on it in ways that keep it from being too much of a talking point? How do, how do you keep it out of interfering? Well, sometimes you can't, of course, because if you're doing interviews with uh, radio stations or like that, uh, we'll talk about the, the, the climate point of view, but then, of course, they'll want to dive into what your personal views are on uh, what the administration's doing about climate change. Uh, you accept that. That's what happens. Uh, I certainly wish we could have separate conversations. The science behind climate change is pretty much darn rock solid as far as I can uh, see. But then there's a the whole issue of what we should do about it. And I would hope that we could have just good conversations about each. Unfortunately, it all gets thrown together uh, in the end, and that's part of the reason that uh, we don't seem to make a lot of progress. Uh, what I see it partly as my role is getting that word out there, making the science accessible. Um, what we try to do is, at, at least at, at the National Snow and Ice Data Center, where we do a lot of outreach on issues like the disappearing sea ice, uh, we try to keep our conversation scientifically accurate but also accessible at the same time. Put it in understandable terms. There are some people who say, well, you can't do that. You can't maintain that science rigor, but also make it accessible so people understand what you're talking about. Well, in fact, we can. We, I think we do a very good job at it. Yeah, that is the important thing. Um, going back to something you said about kind of climate patterns, Boulder has had a quite mild winter, and one winter does not equal climate change, of course. Weather and climate are very different. That being said, how is all of this going to be affecting Boulder in the coming decades? Well, we'll see. As, yeah, certainly one winter doesn't, uh, doesn't tell anything about climate. Uh, this winter, what we've been having this mild climate this winter is basically because we're in a La Nina winter. And when that happens, the storm track tends to be shifted to the north. The storms all track to the north, and all we get is the wind, as you probably noticed. Uh, but that will change. Uh, but what will happen in Boulder here uh, as the Arctic changes? Uh, I think that's a big wild card out there. Um, certainly, we're safe from sea level rise out here, obviously. Um, I think one of the real issues is what I talked about before, uh, that does a changing Arctic actually have an influence on weather patterns? Now, if that's the case, and there's good evidence for that, although albeit controversial, what we're talking about is things like impacts on agriculture, changing precipitation patterns, things like that. Uh, those are some of the concerns, I would say, out there. So uh, you, know, you sometimes think, well, the Arctic is so far away that uh, what happens up there doesn't really matter. Uh, and uh, the reality is uh, that may not be true. Right, and in Boulder, we're over a mile above sea level. It's not like we're worried about being flooded within That's the right. next yeah. 10 years. But there is definitely an impact. Um, and I think a lot of people, uh, I know on campus there are a lot of signs of like, here's what you can do to mitigate climate change. How much of that, how much of the personal impact makes a difference versus kind of more industrial, uh, national level changes? Well, the way I've always looked at this is that the act of, say, turning out the lights when you leave the room or uh, 
putting in compact fluorescents, or now it's uh, uh, more LEDs right now that uh, that are that are better. Um, on a per person basis, that's a drop in the bucket. It's nothing, okay. But what I see the value of that sort of thing in is that it starts to change the mindset. That's the key. You know, if we start getting away from this profligate use of energy and we start to get into this mindset that, that hey, it's, it's good to conserve for many reasons, not just climate change, but economics. If we get into this, this, uh, this frame of mind that uh, energy is valuable, let's save it, let's conserve, that's the thing we need to do. It's changing that mindset. So all these little pieces alone uh, don't do much in a direct sense, but they can collectively be hugely important in changing how we think. You've been listening to Mark Serez on News Underground. He is the director of the National Snow and Ice Data Center here in Boulder, a fellow at Sears, a professor of geography on campus, and his book, Brave New Arctic, The Untold Story of the Melting North, comes out this year. Thank you so much for joining me. That's it for News Underground tonight. Thank you so much for listening. Uh, we will be off this Wednesday, um, but we will keep you updated on any student government um, updates we have. As you may know, uh, the chancellor tried to change the way CU student government um, has financial oversight over their cost centers. Uh, he tried this a couple weeks ago, and then after some protests and uh, pushback, uh, he has paused that effort and is currently in talks with the CU Student Government Administration. I was hoping to have some updates for you today. Uh, we don't not have those, but I will make sure to let you know when we do. In the meantime, thank you so much for listening. Let's get back to the radio. This is Buses Splash with Rain by Frankie Cosmos on Radio 1190.